hello and thank you everyone for joining us with what promised to be a very interesting and informative discussion on some of the latest data on pain in psoriatic arthritis. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today I'm delighted to be joined by a close friend and experienced clinical researcher and colleague with expertise in chronic arthritis, in particular psoriatic arthritis, Professor Kurt de Vlaam from the Department of Rheumatology in the University of Leuven in Leuven in Belgium. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you so much for giving up your time um, and thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to discuss one of your recent publications, one of many, on clinically, clinically meaningful improvements in pain that may be expected in patients with psoriatic arthritis receiving tofacitinib. And we're talking about, in particular, your article recently published in RMD Open um, that talks about pain improvement and the impact of baseline pain severity in PSA patients treated with tofacitinib. So welcome, Kurt. Thank you so much for your time. Can you just fill the audience in a little bit about yourself and what you're doing, where you work, what your interests are? Uh, so thank you, Peter, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to join you, you on this uh recording and on this podcast. Uh, I'm Kurt Vlam, I'm a rheumatologist by uh, training and I'm working in Belgium at the University Hospital uh, in Leuven, uh, where I'm responsible for spinal arthritis, psoriatic arthritis and osteoarthritis clinical and translational research for more than 20 years now. So I have actually a big interest in, uh, on the one hand, pain and pain mechanisms in, in these diseases. And on the other hand, on uh, let's, let's say more uh, metabolic disturbances associated with this disease. So I'm very happy to discuss with you this uh, paper and see how it can be useful for uh, clinical uh, clinicians to apply uh, some of the data we investigated and found uh, during this research. Excellent, excellent. Just before we get there, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how COVID has affected uh, your practice, affected rheumatology in Belgium? Uh, what are the implications and what's going to happen moving forward? So we are in this uh, story now for more than almost two years. Uh, officially, we are, we are in the third wave, but if you look at the graphs, we are liking in the fifth wave, I think. Um, in fact, we are, we are only uh, affected from a, let's say, professional uh, point of view for our patients just in the first wave because we were completely um, unaware what to expect and how to handle this. But let's say after the first wave, uh, we could reorganize the, the clinical practice in such a way that we, in fact, we could see every patient uh, who thought it was needed to be seen and uh, there's no additional delay anymore in the outpatient clinics. Uh, what we see is that uh, in the beginning very few of our patients were affected and we have still the impression that less of our patients are affected than the general population. Uh, so actually we're doing a Belgian study which is called Belcomit together with our gastroenterology and dermatology colleagues looking at the prevalence of antibodies uh, in patients who were under uh, immunomodulating therapy, uh, looking at the rates of infection 
And now in, this, in the actual wave, look at the efficacy of the vaccination, looking at antibody titers to see if they uh, have, are in the same, let's say, same range as we see in the general population. But after all, it's our impression that uh, less of our patients are affected, and especially that uh, only few of our patients went to the, the second stage, like the, the cytokine stage of the disease. And one of the possible explanations could be that they are under this immunomodulating uh, therapy, which maybe protect them somehow or somewhat uh, to the second phase. And have you found that you're doing a lot of telemedicine or not necessary? And are you all vaccinated? Uh, we are all vaccinated and we did some of the telemedicine in the beginning. And uh, after all, it was a very nice experiment to see because we are talking about telemedicine now for years, just without applying it. So at that stage, we were forced to apply it. And I did see, we, we learned about the pro and the cons of telemedicine. And I think in the future, yeah, we, for some patients, uh, we will implement this in, in, uh, in a way to, uh, let's say, skip some of the physical consultations, especially in those patients who are in remission. I think it could be useful for these patients to avoid all this uh, unnecessary uh, physical consultation. And especially patients in remission could benefit from uh, telemedicine on the one hand. And on the other hand, patients also with an urgent problem uh, could benefit from it because they can contact us uh, faster than they could before when they have to come to the, to the hospital, have to be seen by uh, one of the residents or ourselves, and then refer because in many of the cases, these so-called urgencies are not always rheumatological urgencies and, and could be referred to the appropriate treating physicians at that point. And if this could be done by telemedicine, everybody will win. They will gain time and uh, we will not fill up uh, this kind of patients in the outpatient clinics, which are uh, yeah, quite, uh, which is quite busy business, yeah. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So we've actually been doing telemedicine for over a decade now because this place is so huge and we have a real manpower issue with rheumatologists focused in the capital cities. So people can live eight hours drive from a GP, leave alone um, 16 hours drive from a rheumatologist. So, but we always insist on seeing them first time and examining them, getting them started on treatment. And then they go back to where they live and we fine tune over telemedicine. And if we have to see them again, they've got to come down again, drain a knee, inject a shoulder, do that kind of stuff. But we at least insist on examining them fully first time because we find so much stuff outside the joints, thyroid lumps, heart murmurs, big spleens, and all that stuff. We're about the last group specialty that actually puts hands on people to examine. So I, I hope that never goes away. So let's talk about your paper. Um, interesting, the jacks and pain is a very interesting developing story. We saw with Select Compare, RA Bean, Finch One, so it was across the class in RA, head-to-heads with the TNF, that the superiority was driven not by swollen joints or ESR, it was driven by pain, physician global, and patient global. 
So pain and how molecules that are not supposed to cross the blood-brain barrier have this pain effect is fascinating. So any thoughts of what kind of led you into looking at tofacitinib in particular and trying to analyze the pain response? Well, uh, we got interested because tofacitinib was in PSA, the first drug who was, the first jack inhibitor who was tested. And uh, of course it was just anecdotally, but what we, we were surprised that in some of our patients where we, also considered them having widespread pain. They had such a fast effect within weeks on the pain. Although we were a bit reluctant to, to address this to the, to the jacks at that time, because we all know it's placebo controlled and they get more attention. But we saw this several, several times. And then we, we get interested and, and looked deeper into it and, and yes, uh, what we saw is a bit that there seems to be this kind of disconnection on the response on the pain and the more inflammatory, truly inflammatory related signs like um, synovitis. And that's a bit the opposite as we see in methotrexate, where we see a quite, quite rapid response in synovitis, but pain might last for weeks and weeks to three, four, five months. And sometimes it's very difficult to convince people to stay on the, on the methotrexate because they say, yeah, but I have still pain. While from the physician perspective, it's, it's all fine. The CRP is dropping, the number of swollen joints is dropping. And here we had something like the opposite, the reverse. We had a fast pain response and I still have swollen joints and the CRP is still a bit lagging behind. And that's the way we got interested in it. So tell, tell the audience a little bit about Opal Broad and Opal Beyond and Opal Balance so they understand where, these, where the trial came from. Well, Open, uh, open Beyond and Open Broad are the two phase three trials in psoriatic arthritis. And um, the endpoints or the classical endpoints at three months. In one trial, people uh, were allowed to be exposed to TNF uh, blockers and not in the uh, other one. And then from both trials, patients could uh, go in the open extension trial, which is the, uh, is the balance study. So we saw very fast uh, answer on both, on all typical signs of psoriatic arthritis, pain from swollen joints, enthesitis, dactylitis, the skin patient global, physician global after three months, and actually it's approved also for this indication. And, uh, and they, were, they, were clever, they were clever to have an active comparator with alimumab in, in Yes, the yeah. Well, we should stress it's a comparator, it's not a head-to-head, -head, but at least it could characterize the, the, the population and show us that it's quite comparable to the early populations who were exposed to uh, the early TNF blockers, yes. And tell us a little about the pain measures that you used in this trial, the methods, because the 30%, 50%, that's new for many people. They're not used to the, how measuring pain other than a visual analog scale. Yeah, so this, uh, this little bit different way of looking at pain improvement is now 
we have to be honest, it's not validated in PSA, but it is in rheumatoid arthritis. It's like, say, we see much improvement if there is at least 30% of reduction of pain on the VAS, and there is very much improvement um, if there is more than 50% uh, improvement on the, the VAS. And this has been correlated with all kinds of other patient-related outcomes, at least in rheumatoid arthritis. And it seems to co correlate quite well with other ones. So uh, I think this kind of measures, this kind of, of this, this way to look at pain improvement might uh, become more and more uh, integrated in analysis in, in the future. And I think the interesting thing is it's also, uh, you can use it on, on an individual base. That's the interesting thing. Because after all, group improvement doesn't tell that much. Uh, for your individual patient, but at least this time, if you, if you know that this, this level of improvement is clinically meaningful, you could use this on an individual base and can help, uh, your patient or can help the physician to explain the patients and to substantiate the, the improvement in this particular patient. So at least 50%, uh, improvement is, is truly a, a big significant uh, difference and uh, yeah i think that's that's very interesting do you think that it's affected just as much by other factors like depression and and things or as the zero to ten vas was i always thought um, for most of our patients zero should really start at about four rather than at zero but is it affected as much by the patient's psyche and the other factors, anxiety, depression, damage? Will it be similar? Well, I think we have to find out in the future and to correlate and to dig deeper in all potential covariates on, on these instruments. I think that's not very clear yet. Uh, secondly, is that we can't just take the data from rheumatoid to PSA because all this all these, let's say, comorbidities uh, have a different prevalence and have a different connection to the to the disease and to the background of the disease and psoriatic arthritis compared to rheumatoid arthritis. So it might be might play a role. At least what we know, for example, from widespread pain, is that we should dig deeper into the, the associated widespread pain. But we know now from data that those patients with PSA and widespread pain almost never achieve a remission over time. And that the pain, the pain domain is, is, is mainly the domain who prevents them to be, to go into remission. So, uh, at least there is some indication that I think we need further clinical research to find out. Because you do make a point in the paper of looking at the baseline history of fibromyalgia and how it affected some of the outcomes. Yeah. Well, but there were very few patients in, the, in this trial, so we can't draw very firm conclusions, I think. By head, there's like no more than 10 in the whole trial, in all the trials together. So I think that is very low. But okay. um, yeah, I think it would be interesting, at least from real world data, to see uh, if and there is some data from the real world uh, where they looked at associated widespread pain and your your chance to achieve improvement and remission. So uh, yes, that's the problem is that with the VAS for pain that it doesn't tell you what kind of pain the patient is scoring. 
So it must be the classical more susceptive pain, the inflammatory pain or the damage pain, but might also be the neuropathic pain or the nociplastic pain. So, and that's a bit different. And what we see is upcoming studies now where, in addition to the VAS for pain, we see this typical questionnaires and other typical questionnaires for neuropathic pain and for widespread pain. And it would be very interesting to, to find out the relation and to see how it is affected by JAX, for example. I agree, this whole concept of noisy plastic pain is very interesting. And I wonder if there's a switch over time or a window of opportunity before people switch from noisyceptive to noisy plastic and there's permanent changes neurologically. Very, very interesting. So just mention your methods and then mention your results of this particular study, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, so uh, what do you mean by methods? Well, just what you, you, you collected all the patients from uh, balance and you, and you looked at their pain measures and you did some of these very interesting new scores. What did you yeah. find? Well, we looked at the time, uh, the time of improvement, of median improvements, and we saw already that, you see, compared to placebo at week two, there was a, a significant difference, uh, at least for TOFA compared to the placebo. Uh, and over time, we see that, uh, in fact, it is maintained and still increase until three months, and we arrive at a kind of stable plateau around three months. If we look at the comparator, we see that, uh, in fact, the same levels of improvement are seen. It might be, at least in the beginning, that uh, patients on adalimumab respond somewhat faster, but there's no difference anymore at, uh, at the three months. So um, that's, that's an important one, because translated, it means that at least 50% of all patients have a much or very much improvement uh, after uh, three months. Yeah, and you see the fact that this, this improvement, the majority of this improvement already occurs within two months. If you see the median time, it's around 60 days for the 30% and somewhat longer for the 50%. And the interesting thing is that if you look at associated patient-related items like fatigue, uh, uh, like the patient globe, and you see also that they reach a very fast answer uh, or response, or state of response within one month, one and a half months. So importantly for clinical practice is here that within two months, you see three of the major patient-related outcomes, which shows a substantial improvement, which is very good for, for your patient, of course. Yeah. Second, excuse me? Any baseline predictors that might either predict response or time to response? Yeah, so I wanted to come to this is that the, the severity of the pain at the beginning at start predicts uh, also the time to respond. So the higher the pain in the beginning, the faster your response is. And somehow this is a bit logically, mathematically, it's, it's logical. Uh, the bigger your, your beginning score, the more chance you have to have a substantial improvement. Because this improvement, we should be aware, this is not a linear function. This means that not at all stages of your, your score, you improve in the same way. So uh, it's harder to have a 50% improvement if you have a lower score than a higher score, which is 
logic. The important thing for that is that uh, in your individual treatments to the patients, this can help you to, to predict one patient uh, will feel much better from the pain perspective. So in, in the communication with your patient, you can also uh, bring up, uh, let's say, realistic time points uh, to have a, an important improvement, yeah. And I can't recall if you had both doses, 5 and 10 BD. Was there a dose response in the TOPA response? No. Or were you only 5 milligrams only? In, in this analysis, we looked only on the 5 milligrams. Fair enough, because it's, it's not sort of indicated except for colitis anyway. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating that the TNF worked pretty quickly because Georg Shep did that MRI study with the TNFs and showed some changes before the swollen joints change. So yeah. again, the molecule not supposed to cross the blood-brain barrier. So very, very intriguing. Uh, limitations or any other comments about the results that you want to pass on? And then finally, some take-home messages for the clinician. Well, it is a post-hoc study. So uh, you should all be careful uh, about um, the results. Secondly, it's a, a trial population which doesn't cover, especially in PSA, all kinds of clinical subtypes we have. Uh, and the major drawback from this kind of study is that it's only polyarticular disease and not oligoarticular disease. And it might be that um, the desire of these patients related outcomes are different than oligoarticular than in polyarticular and also may behave. Uh, a bit different upon uh, treatment. So as, as a take-home message, as we say, I think uh, tofacitinib is a very valuable tool uh, in the treatment of, of psoriatic arthritis, and in particular on the, on the pain aspect. And uh, that's interesting to convince your patients to stay on the drug uh, from the beginning on, because after all, I think most patients uh, come to you as pain as their presenting uh, symptom. So there is always a, a demand to improve pain. And of course, there is swelling and there is sedimentation and there is CRP, but after all, the patient is really concerned about uh, the pain improvement. And again, uh, we see in, in the trial, and this is in line what we see in rheumatoid arthritis and also in the extension trial, it's the safety aspect is, is okay. There are no uh, particular signals. So I think it's, it's uh, an additional asset in our treatment armamentarium for, the, for these patients. Excellent, excellent. You remind me, asked mentioning Oligo and Porsi, were you able to dissect if any domains had influence on the pain, like skin or itch or enthesitis or dactylitis? Did they have differing um, effects on pain? Well, we didn't look at it in this particular study, but we did in previous studies, and at least uh, we see that skin extension has a uh, effect on pain levels, potentially, and secondly, is uh, at least on, on the patient level, uh, and on, on especially on the patients without related outcomes within the disease activity uh, instruments, we see that skin might play a role. And 
a bit in line with what we looked here uh, is that uh, probably in the next couple of months we did an additional work with TOFA and uh, psoriatic arthritis where we modeled pain over time. So I looked at what, what components contributed to a pain and um, on what, which of these components TOFA had a, a true effect. So there's still more data coming out about this disentangling in fact the pain the the pain instrument and the pain mechanism in this patient group and i can also tell you at least uh, there is very interesting data about this upcoming that's good and i was going to ask do you get any loss of effect over time good pain control and then the longer you follow them percentage uh, well this is quite simple and, and of course this is not only publication but it's in the additional files we made heat maps about the individual patient and we see that once you're uh, an important pain responder you can maintain this we don't lose that much patience over time interesting uh, yeah you think one day it'll be used as a topical pain preparation you could rub tofer on your uh inflamed skin or your sore knee well that will be interest, an interesting one especially in the oligos or the process and, and maybe in other indications where uh topical treatment uh, could be uh, yeah very effective yeah we we thought about uh, diabetic neuropathy and reflex dystrophy and some of these chronic pain conditions topical yeah but you, you could think about nodular osteoarthritis for example Yes. which is uh, quite often, uh, let's say, developing over a long time, but joined by joint separately. So that could be uh, uh, an interesting indication. We can't talk about TOFA without thinking of the oral surveillance study. Mm -hmm. Has it had an effect on European rheumatology and the use of JACs, either TOFA alone or the JAK class? Do you think it's had a cloud? Or, or it hasn't affected things? Well, I think it's, um, it's coming up. So we see more and more, we see the use of, of uh, JAXA is, is increasing. And I think there are many, there are many reasons to do this, yeah. I think after all pills, personally, I think pills are still easier to use than, than needles. So, uh, and especially we see that especially in this population, because that's quite younger population than you see a rheumatoid arthritis, they are much more mobile, they travel more, uh, and then, yeah, it, it's very useful. And from efficacy point, well, the data is the data, and they are very good. So I think uh, there's anything. And we see with the upcoming JAGs now, we see that, in fact, yeah, bit by bit they are taking over uh, and they're moving from third line to second line and, and places where it might be possible they might be even come become first line but at least here in belgium they are quite restricted all this kind of drugs only can be used in second line which as such is not a problem uh, but it's interesting but even as a second line drug we see that the, the let's say the use is increasing yeah so thank you so much for your time and for the very interesting discussion. Uh, you can find this paper in RMD Open online. Uh, we recommend you have a good look at the paper. Um, we'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month. 
You can get detailed slide sets available in the publication section, cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your media and give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. Thanks so much, Kurt, for your time. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Have a nice day. Nice to see you. Bye. Hopefully, face-to-face, Eula Copenhagen. Yeah, sure. What do you think? What are the chances? I think they're increasing. <laughs> yeah, well, we, 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 start, we start the first uh, physical meeting this week, a kind of Belgium-Holland match. So, fingers crossed. Yeah. All right. Nice to see you. You too. Bye. All the best. Thank <laughs> you.